Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. Hello, I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in Somerset and I'm here today with my colleague, Jane Scullion, who's a nurse consultant in the University Hospitals Leicester to talk about post-COVID syndrome. This is designed to be something for you to listen to. It's designed for PCRS members. And some of the questioning here might be quite challenging. If you do have answers that we don't, please feel free to write in and we can amend the podcast at a later date. But let's first of all go for definitions after I've introduced Jane. Jane, do you want to say hello and what's going on? Hi, yes. Hi, Steve. Good to see you. COVID, the gift that keeps on giving. So, um, and I think that's especially true with people who have got post-COVID recovery. And I think that's a nice way of thinking about it rather than long COVID, because I think that gives it a more positive message. Thoroughly agree with that. Yes. Um, the, The concept of long COVID means you've got it for a long time. The concept of a post-COVID syndrome doesn't say how long the duration is going to be. But definitions-wise, NICE and the Scottish Intercollegiate Guideline Network have gone for acute COVID being symptoms and signs of COVID up to a month. Ongoing symptomatic is four to 12 weeks of symptoms and signs. And the post-COVID syndrome, which is what we're going to be talking about here, kicks in at three months. So that's quite an important thing. And the other thing about post-COVID syndrome is it's signs and symptoms that are consistent with the initial infection, but not explained by an alternative diagnosis, like older people who've had a heart attack. So is it common, Jane? Well, it appears to be, and that's something worth debating. So the Office for National Statistics in November put out their statistics around it. And they said there's about 1.2 million people in the UK suffering with COVID or long COVID. It's very hard not to say COVID recovery because they're not suffering. So they've got a post-COVID syndrome. Of this, and this is what I'd really like to debate with you, it it says that the general population, it's about 1.9% of the general population, but 3.3% of healthcare workers. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think... First thing is, I wonder how accurate the data is it's, and how many people they've used to find that out. I guess one in 50 people is a huge number. If we're saying generally, you know, 1.2 million, one in, one in 50 people having that, that is a phenomenal number of people across the population. But how bad are their symptoms? How long do they last for? I think many of us will have had COVID, will have been poorly for a couple of weeks. A few of us will have been poorly for, for a while longer. Not so many of us are having symptoms that have been more persistent over a much more protracted period of time. Yeah, so so this survey sort of suggested that around 426,000 people had symptoms lasting for more than a year. So there are there is a portion of it that, that actually seem to have these ongoing symptoms. And I think it's probably worth looking at the symptoms. What are the common symptoms? And trying to pick apart what you... We're quite clear about is it something that's been ongoing with somebody anyway or is it actually caused by having covid and jane you've got some expertise in this haven't you you've been listening in to 
um, and speaking to people with the, with problems post-COVID? Yeah, I think we were quite early adopters of it because we were doing a lot of research into it. So we, we quickly set up clinics for anyone who'd been hospitalised with COVID. So they were the very early ones. But obviously, that's a slightly different disease from what you've probably seen in general practice in terms of the severity of the disease. And, and I ran a, a service in Somerset for three or four months before it's taken over by colleagues, looking at people who had post-COVID syndrome symptoms for more than three months, um, who were being referred into that unit. And I guess one of the common things that probably both of us saw were fatigue and breathlessness as main symptoms of those patients. And that's what the evidence is showing, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to be. So there's, there's several sources. So it depends where you get your source from. And I think you kindly passed over the Zoe data about fatigue. So, you know, 77% of fatigue, a lot of malaise. This brain fog they talk about in over half of the people that were talked where they can't think rationally, can't get their heads around it. And I don't know if that's because what they've experienced or what they've seen. And certainly, you know, very much so in, in the hospital setting, these people underwent horrendous experiences watching other people suffering with what they'd got as well. And I, and I think certainly we know that people who've been on intensive care are much more prone to brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, as we probably should call it. Um, I, I just th- I just one of the things I learned a lot about was I used to come home having done a hard day's work at the office, which I'm sure many of us do, and feel absolutely shattered. But I hadn't been running anywhere. I hadn't been physically exerting. It was primarily my brain that had done the work during the day. And I think that's important to remember because a lot of people with post-COVID syndrome have tiredness when they exert themselves physically. And they can also have tiredness when they exert themselves mentally as well at a much earlier phase than they would have done. So people I spoke to, 14-hour days, working in business, go down to finding it really hard to do more than a couple of hours of, of brain work before they really needed to rest and recover. And it's a different sort of world, isn't it? You know, a lot of us are attached to our computer screens for a lot longer and, and the intensity and the breaks are very different in terms of, you know, our time away from screens. I, I agree. And I, and I think that's been one of the challenges. I think the other interesting thing about people with post-COVID syndrome, many of them described post-exertional malaise, be that physical or mental, when they had exerted, they didn't only just feel tired like you or I would do if we'd been for a long walk or had a hard day at the office, but they also had symptoms of fever, temperature, cough, nausea, vomiting, after exerting themselves, almost replicating some of the symptoms they'd had during the acute phase and very you know, commonly described. Yeah, it's just such an interesting concept, isn't it? Because, you know, I've, I've, during the time I've been doing clinics, I've seen people who've actually been to ITU for, for a couple of weeks or, or longer who don't have anything afterwards. Yeah. And people with fairly mild ones that, that do... And, and a lot of it, um, when you ask people, are you all right, especially when you see them face to face and you just see something in their eyes that says, actually, I'm not. And we know alongside the more physical symptoms, there's an awful lot of depression and anxiety. There's guilt, the survivor guilt. Um, and it all gets added into the mix, doesn't it? 
Yes, no, and I think probably clinically, when I'm seeing people, when I was seeing them in a, in a post-COVID clinic, post-COVID recovery clinic, I was thinking very carefully, if this person had been into intensive care and often been ventilated for several days where their, their muscles were doing nothing, they'd been paralyzed, they were being fed, they had drips and catheters in, and they were, and they, effectively people were breathing for them with our machines, that takes an awful lot out of the body. And the recovery we've known for years will often take a year with that. But a surprising number of people have had symptoms with relatively mild acute COVID that hasn't required hospital admission. Yeah, so there seem to be subsets. And it obviously, in the way that it attacks people in a different way, I think the recovery is very different in everyone. And, and we thought we'd see lots of obvious respiratory signs and symptoms on chest x-ray. And it doesn't seem to be about that. It doesn't seem to be that you pick up an awful lot of ongoing fibrotic problems unless you get the you know the odds from having been ventilated and very interesting wasn't it because with SARS there was quite a lot of interstitial lung disease identified over the first couple of years we didn't see you know SARS being a coronavirus we didn't see the same extent of that with um, the COVID-19 but a lot of people significantly breathless in that post-COVID recovery phase that post-COVID syndrome I, I guess that's where in my primary care situation, it's me thinking carefully about what investigations do I need to do? Does this person need a chest X-ray or possibly a CT scan? And I guess in the hospital setting, that was something that you were much more familiar with undertaking. Yeah, so we did, a, you know, everybody got a, a, well, a lot of routine stuff really for a hospital setting. So chest X-ray, um, interestingly, ECG, and we picked up a lot of abnormalities that myself was mainly respiratory was running to the cardiologist and he's just like yeah that's normal it, you, you find these things yeah and we and we and in a way this isn't particularly new the the expression as an ent as a totality is perhaps new but we've seen all these sort of symptoms and syndromes in the past to a lesser extent with both SARS, but also with post-influenza, other viruses that cause symptoms for a persistent period of time afterwards. So it, interesting. Yeah. So do you think it's this cytokine storm that people are experiencing with COVID that leads to things? Because that's often been linked to things like chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. I really don't know. There was a good article in Nature about three months ago, which I, I think we can probably put the reference out for, which went into all the science behind it. But if I summarise the 20 pages, it said, we don't really know yet. Okay. But it did talk about cytokine storms. It did talk about hyperimmune responses by the body, uh, all sorts of different hypotheses, but very difficult to know. So what do we actually need to do about it? So we obviously need that really good assessment of people, and that's both physical and where they are mentally in terms of how they're handling it. But what are we going to do that's positive to help people recover? I think there's probably three areas to that. The first is, let's call it post-COVID syndrome, not it's going to last a long time. Number two we have to think very carefully clinically about whether this person needs other investigations. Quite a few people have presented with what they thought was post-COVID syndrome, but have actually had things like polymyalgia, 
tumors, anemia, other causes. So I don't think we should be afraid to investigate these people. That may well reassure us. It will help to reassure them if it's appropriate. And I think the third thing is be positive. Most of the people that I saw who'd had symptoms for eight or nine months are now virtually better or better. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing. And and probably like yourself, we've done a lot of signposting to the good resources that are out there. You know, it it is about the post-COVID recovery sites. It is about access to physiotherapy, pulmonary rehabilitation, occupational therapists. I I agree. And let's get into the controversial areas, which might come up if if we don't cover them, but might equally come up if we don't, which is around how we advise people to exercise. And if we think about a normal injury, we say, right, rehabilitate in a set way. And you know that if you fractured your leg, you rest it for a while, then you start doing your exercises again and you're back to normal in about a year. We also know that after pulmonary rehab, programs are about constructive increasing amounts of exercise. What was less clear with a post-viral tiredness is how much we should just drive people through. And it might be worthwhile if if I just say this little bit about what I saw a lot in the clinics that I was involved in, i.e. people that weren't under specialist care and had been admitted, a lot of them were women between about 35 and 55, and they were often very driven, either professionals who, when things weren't working, they just worked harder, or people who had children and mortgages to pay and food to put on the table who couldn't afford not to be working because their family wouldn't survive and just push themselves harder and harder. And a large number of the people that I was seeing, actually, we had to try to persuade to ease up a bit and take it more gently and then start to build up again more carefully. I think that's really important that you give people the you allow them to have a recovery from it. So you're almost given permission from it. And I think, you know, the, the Occupational Therapist Society came up with, you know, the three Ps. So it's about pace, plan, prioritise. Energy conservation is really important when you're recovering from any illness. Yes, and we, and we shouldn't rush it. If, you, if we think about it, pneumonia will often take three months before we're feeling back to normal, although often still a little bit tired, a proper community-acquired pneumonia. Fractured leg, we're looking at six months to a year for recovery. Things don't just get better overnight, even though we might want them to. So how long should we follow people up for? I think that's a, a really good question. I don't know the answer to that in specialist care. I think probably um, at a primary care level, we should be talking about safety netting, which is If your symptoms aren't slowly and steadily improving, as you would expect, please contact me. And if you develop new symptoms for which you can't explain them, then please get in contact. And perhaps reflecting, I know that most of the people listening to this will be mainly respiratory. Quite a few of the people that that I was seeing in clinics and quite a few of the people in the literature had gastrointestinal symptoms, often diarrhea, and they'd often been investigated for potential cancers, quite rightly in that age group. A significant number have tachycardia or flushing or autonomic dysfunction. And again, worthwhile thinking, do I need an ECG? Could this be potentially a myocarditis? Do I need a cardiology opinion? Quite a few had already been through the respiratory teams at a hospital level because of significant breathlessness. And interesting, quite a few also had 
allergic symptoms, urticaria, wheezy palpitations, breathlessness, linked into what people have talked about as a mast cell activation, which fits in with this cytokine storm and other areas. Other things that are coming out at the moment that aren't quite as well referenced are increased numbers of people with menopausal and menstrual type symptoms going along with it, and a significant number of people with um, unusual headaches that are, are, are coming through at a persistent basis. So very wide numbers of symptoms, many of which do warrant investigation if it's not clear that this is a clear part of the pattern. I think you've very well summed up, you know, the strengths of general practice in that being a generalist, you think about all these. We had to have MDTs involving the diabetologists, um, the neurologists, the cardiologists, because we concentrate just on respiratory. And I think if we'd have just concentrated on that, we would have lost a lot of what you're talking about. I, I think I, I think you're doing yourself down. I think you've got the expertise for the more complex patients that we don't have. And that's where it's important to use both the people who are specialising in one disease area, but also a number of specialists together. So I think I think that's invaluable for us. And, and you can try, but it won't work. We won't let you run yourself down for that. <laughs> I think the other thing along with that is... It is, it is a question of believing the patients. And one of the things that we've spoken about in primary care at a national level is listening carefully to the symptoms they have and documenting those, because there are a lot of symptoms that people can have and often do have with this, with this problem during the recovery phase. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a bit like the raised blood sugars that we found on an awful lot of people, but you're never sure it's, if it's because we've given them loads of steroids and just tip their balance or where the diets have altered and everything else. And when we talk about symptoms, the most distressing thing to a lot of the ladies I spoke to was hair loss. Yep. Hair loss was quite common. And, and again, you need to think about your alopecia screens in that sort of situation. And again, it should be selective investigation, not just blanket bombing of any investigation you can think of. But alopecia was quite common. Other things that came out, relatively frequently were recurring dermatological problems, urticaria is one, but also chillblains and other things. Um, I think the Spanish described 30 separate presentations of different skin rashes linked in with, with COVID. So uh, again, it, it is a multi-system, multi-organ, total body uh, infection that we're, we're dealing with a lot of the time. Yeah, and, and it, as they say, it's ongoing. I, th I think, you know, the latest research coming out on on post-COVID recovery is actually showing that these symptoms appear real, are definitely, you know, a burden for the patient and something that in the long term we're probably going to have to live with and deal with. A couple of things I've been hearing about on the respiratory side is, oh, um, I can't really hear any wheezing. I can't find anything on the chest X-ray, sometimes CT scan. Should I be trying an inhaled corticosteroid? I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I've seen quite a few specialists saying, well, it's probably not going to do any harm, might do a little bit of good, why not? I think it's always what you say, it's, it's a trial of treatment and review. Did it actually do anything? Obviously, as we gather more evidence, whether it's got a good efficacy, um, and it probably, as you say, is the least harm. So, so again, a, a pragmatic, sensible approach means that we may be doing this in selected cases. I guess the other thing just to remind our respiratory colleagues about is pulmonary emboli. And that was certainly well known in the acute phase and people admitted to hospital. 
um, and a lot of people getting prophylactic treatment on, on discharge. But quite a few patients lying in ho at home in bed for 10 days with a nasty cough and fever are going to be equally at risk. So that deconditioning and fear has also in, you know, increased the symptomology, hasn't it? And um, you know, we're going to be sitting here with more evidence about how to treat numbers and everything else. And I think we've got a, a long COVID recovery as well, Steve. That sounds brilliant. A good point to stop. And perhaps we need to do a session on the impact of shielding. Lovely to talk to you as always. Good to talk to you too. And any questions or thoughts coming in would be gratefully received. There should be an email where you pick up this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe for future podcasts. Goodbye.